Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today we have another bonus episode, Living in Chains, a brief look at plantation life. As a follow-up to a previous episode trying to portray slavery from the perspective of those held in its grip, today I wanted to explore slavery in a wider view. In this episode, we will avoid covering the plantation as an economic institution, but we will look at it as experienced by slaves. The economics of slaveholding is actually an important topic, and it is one, again, that we can cover in another day, but it's just too broad of a topic to add on to this. In fact, we will have to put off a discussion of urban slavery and skilled labor as well for another day. Instead, today's episode will cover slavery's impact on African Americans in the South, specifically in the context of plantations. This was the primary experience of American slaves, and therefore it makes sense as the primary focal point of our discussion. To begin with, let us ask a first and serious question, one that goes back to a very first episode in this series. Who were slaves in America? The obvious answer, and one that's not wrong, is that slaves were Africans, and this is certainly how other American citizens might identify them. However, this answer does not suffice for us. The slaves were ethnically different from most other Americans, yes, but their culture was also thoroughly Americanized. They adopted American language in the form of English, religion, and to a considerable degree even the same ideals or philosophy as the free citizenry around them. They were so alike that without the racial component, one would be hard-pressed to explain why one man was a slave and the next free. This is something very important to understand. Certainly among the British, Dutch, French, or other settlers in early America, there could be generalized suspicion against foreigners, people who held somewhat different cultures. Racism is not a new thing. However, Americans did not seek out African slaves because the former were specifically prejudiced against the latter. Americans became prejudiced because they could get African slaves and later on owned African-American slaves. Racism was a reactionary attitude developed to enforce the social and economic hierarchy. This context should always be kept in mind during this discussion. In order to maintain it, that is the hierarchy in this manner, attitudes evolved and laws adapted. In the colonies and later the United States, Slave status almost invariably followed the mother. This resulted in some rather infamous behavior and something that I want to point front and center in this discussion. Male slave owners could violate their female slaves with impunity and then sell their own offspring for profit. Not everyone did this, but it was common enough everywhere to become a non-scandal. Mary Chestnut, wife of South Carolina secessionist James Chestnut, wrote that, like the patriarchs of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and their concubines. But she also recognized that planters' wives pretended not to notice the mixed-race children that spontaneously sprang up on their own plantations. To quote from the autobiographical narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, My father was a white man. He was admitted to be such by all I ever heard speak of my parentage. The opinion was also whispered that my master was my father. But of the correctness of this opinion, I know nothing. The means of knowing was withheld from me. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant. 
before I knew her as my mother. It is a common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. Frequently, before the child has reached its twelfth month, its mother is taken from it and hired out on some farm a considerable distance off. This does not mean that such infamous practices were universal, and it should be understood, too, that some white men behaved more or less scrupulously and implicitly or even explicitly recognized their children. The heart sometimes loves whom it loves. Although the most elite white planters couldn't possibly acknowledge their liaisons, it seems there were quite a few men lower in society who cheerfully married whom they wished and, in one sense, mocked the racial hierarchy. That said, it was only men who had even that small privilege. It was quite unthinkable for white women to have personal relationships outside their race. Similar ethnic prejudices existed even outside of the white-black dichotomy, but this was the strongest branch of discrimination. This also brings us to an uncomfortable, ugly reality around plantation slavery. Many, many slaves had free European ancestors, and often very recently in their family tree. They were bought and sold by their own family, fathers and brothers and uncles, for convenience or profit. In the slave markets of New Orleans, even, there were specialists in one particular kind of merchandise. Beautiful female slaves. You can probably guess why. Indeed, slave-holding Americans could never even really work out what white or black meant, even to them personally. The assumption of everyone in society was that white meant free and black meant slave, and this was never entirely true from the beginning. And the law sometimes did permit white slaves to sue for their freedom. Even in this practice, however, it was dreadfully hard for any slave to access the legal system. They would receive freedom if the master deemed they should and that mostly flowed in line with the prejudices of society. That said, again, freedom was the dream of basically every slave. Even those who eventually gave up on it did so not because they stopped wanting it, but because they simply knew that such an achievement was unlikely to ever be theirs, that the chances and odds were stacked so heavily against them as to make its direct pursuit impossible. As a man or woman aged, the impossibility of that dream and the general grinding of life often took its own toll on hope. Yet individual slaves did not stop hoping and praying, and even quietly working to liberate themselves and each other and their children. Both the road to freedom and the shocking experience of it belongs to another story in another day. For now, the important fact remains that liberty remained an unachievable dream for most slaves. It took special circumstances or good luck, usually in the form of a master who approved of the idea, Yet that did not mean life for slaves never changed. It just often changed for the worse. Probably most slaves could expect to be sold at least once in their lifetime. America expanded westward rapidly, and the slave system grew with it. Slavery moved from the coast all the way across the country to the Mississippi Riverlands, and even beyond into Texas. Although Louisiana long had both slavery and plantations, most of the slave population there during statehood arrived from the eastern United States. When sold from one planter to another, little, if any, attention was paid to the needs of slaves themselves to keep in touch with friends or family. Indeed, families were commonly split apart, husband from wife, mother from child, sibling from sibling. There was no recourse except for families to pitifully beg to be sold together, which does not seem to have been the norm. Once separated, 
Slaves might have no way of ever contacting their loved ones, even if they knew where to look. This could and did happen without warning as well. Slaves might guess that a major change in the master's life, or more particularly his or her death, could lead to some uncertainty as to their fate. Even when family slaves were divided only among direct heirs, those slaves might be permanently separated. This was hard enough to bear, but at least slaves in those conditions could at least hope for news of family, or perhaps the chance to visit long-sundered relatives alongside their masters. In most cases, both the causes and circumstances could not be easily predicted, and the results often much worse. Slave owners who caught the urge to gamble or made bad investments might face the sudden need to raise funds, and they often chose to sell slaves to meet those needs. Changes in the market prices for commodities or for slaves themselves might induce masters to buy or sell unexpectedly. And even when slave owners died and left substantial estates, they often had real debts to pay, and so courts frequently seized slaves to pay them. All this and more could result in slaves being shipped far from home, probably never to return. This alone would have seemed brutal enough to endure, yet one additional indignity was placed upon slaves. They were not provided with even the most basic education. The ability to read and write would have allowed slaves to send letters to one another, but masters viewed that as exceptionally dangerous. Slaves were therefore denied even the humblest blessing of the postal service. A small number of slaves, probably concentrated in cities, did learn to read and write. They might also be taught by well-disposed masters, although the example of Frederick Douglass provides another method. He tricked young white lads into teaching him letters, one by one. Significantly in the context of American Protestantism, the lack of literacy made reading the Bible difficult or impossible. This may seem strange given the importance of religion in this age and the emphasis placed by American Protestants on reading the Bible itself. Yet most masters considered the risk of dangerous ideas too great. Even the readers provided for preaching to slaves were carefully expurgated of any passages that might edge too closely into ideas of liberation. The slaves themselves, it should be understood, were probably not fooled by this. They became very devout Christians even holding prayer meetings on their own in secret away from the masters. So, too, none but the most hardened of masters could possibly deny slaves the opportunity for a revival. They understood, better than the masters, that Christianity promised liberty, in this life or the next. On a more practical level, too, slaves also understood that masters wanted to keep the written world carefully fenced off from all slaves. The latter correctly assumed that writing held great significance, and perhaps it was the key to freedom. They paid close attention to what the masters said and thought, and carefully transmitted amongst one another their own interpretation of events, from neighborhood to neighborhood, plantation to plantation, region to region. Of course, for the clear majority of slaves, daily life trapped them on plantations. This, in a sense, was the world for most slaves, who rarely if ever saw anything outside of it. They often lacked the context for news because of the limitations of their lives and the isolation of plantation life. Now, to be clear, plantations are not the same thing as slaveholding, not even in the United States. The word means a commercial farm for the growing of commodities, nothing more or less. However, American plantations very frequently did use slave labor because it paid, and the better it paid, the more it drove out free labor. 
By the time we began this series, around 1830 or so, plantations had become much more separate from the world around them, and mostly dependent on slavery. Although, of course, they never succeeded in totally blocking out the outside world, they did a pretty solid job in many areas. Quite often, plantation slaves had very little contact with free labor, whether white or African American. Many slave owners, for their part, explicitly idolized a kind of feudal estate and hoped to transform their plantations into the equivalent. Note that their impression of feudalism reflected fantastic tales of King Arthur by Mallory and Tennyson. Both published in the early 19th century, and both became wildly popular. But they had little to do with real history and never pretended to. That didn't stop slave owners from distinctly and specifically imagining themselves as knights or cavaliers. Wealth, and all the rules of society and law, gave slave owners considerable power to model themselves however they liked, and they ran their plantations as they pleased in turn. This is something to emphasize. No two plantations were managed in quite the same way. Even neighboring planters could run things very differently from one another. One master might be kind and persuasive, another cruel and demanding. One master could be generous with food, another stingy. One might carefully keep slaves from any outside influence, while another could give education or even clear a path to manumission. And this was not merely a matter of good men doing things one way and evil ones another. It was all mixed up together. Therefore, to a degree, we have to take an assertion of an average plantation or an average life with a grain of salt. We can't truthfully say that slaves living on plantations all lived the same way. They didn't. Agriculture alone differed widely over the South, which encompassed almost every imaginable climate short of Arctic snows. And slaves lived everywhere, from chilly mountains to waterlogged tropics so it should not surprise us that their lifeways differed as well. That being said, we can still point to several major commonalities. Plantations usually dealt in one or two of five major crops, sugar, rice, tobacco, corn, and cotton. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but these were the dominant agricultural products in the South at this time. And of these, the most significant to the slaveholding economy were corn and cotton. Planters really wanted the cotton, the white gold which fueled their economy, as well as providing the cloth for America, Europe, and far beyond. Cotton had several convenient features for planters, but perhaps most significantly, it usually needed labor at different times of the year compared to corn. It was therefore possible to raise cotton and food crops, greatly simplifying the sheer logistics of the plantation economy. This was rather important for planters, as while they could easily move non-perishable cotton to the market, Moving foodstuff to the plantations, in turn, took more time and expense. The slaves, not surprisingly, only received poor-quality cotton clothing in exchange for their work growing the raw materials. Worse yet, the allowance of this varied greatly, and it was not generous by any stretch of the imagination. Observers sometimes documented seeing slaves working in the fields stark naked, and although that doesn't seem to have been the norm, it would likely have been a rare enslaved man or woman who never had to do without clothing in some variety. And other cloth goods, such as blankets, might be hard to come by. The corn, often grown on the plantation itself or on nearby farms that specialized in selling it to other planters, fueled the slave workforce. It was the primary bulk foodstuff most planters allowed their slaves. The slaves would usually receive a ration of pork as well, although here we run into a bit of a mystery. 
Observers sometimes reported this amount to three pounds or more of pork weekly. But that seems more like an aspiration than a reality. Others said slaves received some, just a smaller amount. Still more said that slaves received no meat at all, except on special occasions. The reality is that it's difficult to tell exactly what the average slave received and when they received it. An additional complication lies in the fact that slaves often provided some amount of food for themselves, often a considerable amount. Probably most slaves had access to a small personal garden or some wild land. They might grow or forage for beans, green vegetables, and even some fruit if they could get at it. Slaves also set catch lines for fish or trapped wild animals if allowed to in their free time. The overall portion wasn't a generous amount. Agricultural laborers probably needed in the vicinity of 3,000 calories a day, but slaves likely didn't receive that, and certainly not reliably. Moreover, the food was often of poor quality, which contributed to health problems. Slaves had very little cookware, if any, and often had no method of preparing dishes in the ways that would deliver nutrients efficiently. Of course, the science of nutrition lay far into the future. But humans more or less instinctively try to improve their diet to meet their needs even without understanding what it is they're hungry for. In terms of overall diet, the best we can say is that the slave, on average, evidently did get enough to live one way or the other. But that is about all we can say. Even the poorest of free families could expect to live on more and better food, and work less to get it at that. Making the food situation worse was the fact that slaves would be forced to work from dawn to dusk, or even longer, probably long after the point where there was useful labor to do. Therefore, to the slave, malingering and shirking was arguably a badge of honor, and the ability to do it convincingly a great asset. It saved energy, and quite frankly, the slave really didn't care much about whether or not the master might object. He or she should only be ashamed of getting caught doing it. Now, the punishments for slights or mistakes or even real crimes were no joke. Masters legally did not hold the power of life and death over their slaves, unlike old Roman law, but there wasn't much difference. In theory, all slave states broadly prohibited cruel infliction of wanton violence. Yet a rather wide gap existed between law and practice. The plain reality lay in the fact that a slave getting whipped or beaten, even to death, was hardly worthy of note. In exceptional circumstances, the law could get involved, but in most cases, would never even know or care. Who is going to complain if a master killed one of his slaves by whipping? The local judges probably owned slaves themselves and treated them no better. And even if someone did care, the law had too many carve-outs and exceptions such that it made all but the most egregious behavior pass muster. The result of all this was that slaves faced the most cruel and inventive pains masters could devise, and the masters proved sinisterly ingenious at that task. Whipping was only the most obvious and perhaps the most common kind of punishment. But clever inventors kept coming up with every imaginable tool to deliver agony-inflicting blows. Fifty strikes were considered no very great number for real or imagined disobedience. And the list of torments only begin there. Gagging and bucking with another amusement, which locked a slave down into a very uncomfortable position for hours. Alternatively, slaves could be branded, hung up where they were barely able to avoid an actual slowly choking to death hanging, shot, hunted with attack dogs, or even had spoked collars clamped firmly around their necks for days. If you can imagine it, a slave probably suffered that or worse. 
And even on the best days, all a slave really had to look forward to after eating that meager meal was to go back to a very poor drafty cabin. Probably had no windows and no door, just a flap. It was hot in the summer and kept out little chill in the winter. The mosquitoes would have the run of the place. The slaves could build better, but they had no tools and no materials other than what the masters chose to provide, and few provided very well. Such were the rewards of loyalty. In fact, slave owners often complained that their bondsmen were untrustworthy, deceptive, or even treacherous, and certainly worthy of punishment. Now, slaves often did pretend to be less intelligent or capable than they really were, and they did not let on how much they really understood of matters. As Mary Chestnut wrote of slaves, quite literally during the bombardment of Fort Sumter, you could not tell that they hear even the awful row that is going on in the bay, and people talk before them as if they were chairs or tables. Are they stolidly stupid or wiser than we are, silent and strong, biding their time? She was right to be suspicious, but what masters broadly failed to understand, or at least could not admit to themselves, was that their own behavior sparked this. Slave owners inflicted cruelties and made demands when they willed it, not in an abstractly just or predictable manner. The slaves entirely understood this, and so the masters were only protesting the results of their actions. Slaves acted in a defensive manner because they were deeply exploited and held in cruel close contact with violent lunatics. To explain in a different way, perhaps the most similar situation one can provide is that of an abusive spouse. The victim often fears that he or she has done something wrong, and lives in terror of making a mistake. The abuser isolates the victim, but does not instill constant fear. Instead, the abuser acts with manipulation. They may be kind at some times, then grow violent, erratically, and to an absurd degree from the pettiest of provocations, or even for purely invented reasons. At the same time, they could just ignore or pass over ostensibly more serious problems. The victim then walks on eggshells trying to please the abuser, because they have no idea what might set off more violence. It can be difficult enough for free people with social resources to escape this, now imagine that the law will drag the victim back to the abuser in chains if they try to leave, and everyone knows it. That is very roughly how one can understand slaveholding. To quote another passage by Frederick Douglass, I have often been awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of an old aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip upon her naked back till she was literally covered in blood. No words, no tears, no prayers from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. The louder she screamed, the harder he whipped. That said, I want to end on a little bit of a more positive note. Plantations and punishment are not the whole story when it comes to the lives of slaves. They were active creators of culture. White masters frequently presumed that slaves had no inner lives or art to speak of simply because as enslaved people they lacked the resources and education to document it and disseminate it. Yet, in reality, they sustained a powerful identity in the face of bitter oppression. Not only did they bring to these shores valuable skills such as cattle ranching and rice cultivation, but they actively contributed richly to the wider American culture despite itself, 
from music to handicrafts to artworks. African-American slaves inserted their own culture into the wider American body. These contributions usually went unrecognized in free white society, but they were present nonetheless. For a very small and simple point, consider something as American as barbecue. This cooking method was likely brought to the United States by slaves, though the exact process is still murky. African slaves would have known open-pit cooking methods from home, and then mixed them with Caribbean smoking methods when they were brought as slaves to those shores. When they or their descendants were again sold off to American planters, the slaves created an entirely new culinary style, using the foods and spices available locally in the United States. And as it turned out, even the most well-heeled planter brimming with racism and self-regard really, really wanted to eat barbecue. That may seem like a small, even trivial example, and yet culture is often built on the small things people share. Values, ideals, and beliefs are similarly the tiniest of things, and yet they do move entire nations. The reality is that slaves, abused and exploited as they were, were not foreigners, not by the time of this story. They had become new Americans and been assimilated into American life. The awful part was that most free, white men and women didn't believe it. Witness the Dred Scott decision, where the Supreme Court itself declared that African Americans could never be citizens. And yet, the slaves and later free African Americans demanded respect. One at a time, they freed themselves, first in the mind and then in the body, wherever they could, and they always bore a powerful testimony against slavery and slaveholding, both in the abstract and as actually practice. They showed the scars of whip and lash and chain to all who would look, but they were not broken by it. By the 1850s, more free white Americans decided they could no longer look away. It may have taken too many years. And of course, the trials of the Civil War would not destroy all racism. It would not deliver all equality. But it was a beginning, a beginning of a march onto that road. And the march, though delayed, did happen. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War podcast. Please join us next week for a fateful election and the revolution of 1860.